get going. Cool. Let's pray. Father, we just want to lift you up and give you all glory and just worship you and thank you for the fact that we can gather here together without persecution. We can gather and worship you freely and tell people of your goodness and of who you are. May you pray tonight as Roll shares from your mighty word. May we be sharpened, built up, and strengthened. Lord, bless him as he shares. Thank you for the gift and the mantle that he carries in this place. But we lift you up tonight, Jesus, and we say, come and be glorified. Bless Rolls, bless this time in the worship amen. afterwards in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, guys. Good evening, everybody, and, uh, and welcome. It is really good to be here together. Um, if you're new, we uh, started a series last week in the book of Hebrews. Um, Howard did a fantastic job uh, of giving us a broad, general overview and perspective uh, on the book of Hebrews. And your homework was to go and watch the Bible Project Breakdown. If you did that, good job. Right? Um, if you didn't, go do it again. It's fine. We're not checking and you don't get marks for it. Um, but it was a fantastic overview. Uh, this week, what we're doing is we're diving straight in. We're going to be focusing a little bit more on what is essentially the prologue of Hebrews and the first section, um, and that's chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. We're going to be unpacking that a little bit tonight. But I just want to say I really am excited for this. I am so excited for the book of Hebrews because it's not often that you just get to preach on Jesus. Right? And that's essentially what the book of Hebrews does. It just unpacks Jesus. Theologians would have called the book or referred to the book as the most Christologically rich book in the entire New Testament. It just really highlights and unpacks the person of Jesus. It's, it's the clearest, most systematic unpacking of the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus you'll find anywhere in the Scriptures. There's no one book that focuses on Jesus the way the book of Hebrews doesn't. And the reason why I think that's so exciting is because we live in such a narcissistic, self-centered world, right? where it's, it's just about getting more, doing things my way. People are consumed with passion for more stuff, more money, more power, more security, more comforts. We desire the things of this world more and more. As a culture, that's, that, that's what's out there. And I think if we're not careful, and at times we haven't been, that sort of infects and infiltrates the church. And that sort of attitude shifts our gaze. We get influenced by the world. We get influenced by the flesh and by the enemy. And our gaze gets turned away from Jesus. And somewhere along the line, um, our lives become about this world and being comforted in this world and, and having stuff in this world and making decisions that are best for us for the here and the now. Our faith becomes about what I can get from it. What can Jesus and the church do for me instead of what has God called me to do in the kingdom? Following Jesus becomes about what I need and what I want. And so we get frustrated with church when it doesn't look the way that we expect it to look. And essentially becomes idol worship because we treat God, we treat Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as this, as this vending machine that when we put our time in, we must give something out. And when that doesn't happen, we get jaded and disillusioned with church. We've learned, I think, essentially to sum it all up at times, to love the gift more than the gift giver. Because let's be honest, Jesus gives us some amazing gifts that we don't deserve. First and foremost, himself. But we end up loving the gift more than the gift giver. And this is why I'm so excited about Hebrews. 
It's what I'm trusting God to do through the book of Hebrews as we journey through it. And that's just shift our gaze back to Jesus. Let's just shift our gaze back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let's read together. Um, it's going to be quite a chunk of Scripture. I'm going to tell you just now how we're going to break it up. Um, and uh, I'm excited for it. So let's go. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay attention, therefore, most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation. You'll remember if you're last, you're here last week, how it unpacked the reason why the author to the Hebrews wrote the Hebrew uh, letter. It was to encourage them not to walk away from their faith. And he elevates Jesus and then compares Jesus to something. And then elevates Jesus and compares Jesus to something. And in the book of Hebrews, there's some significant warning passages and tonight we're going to unpack the first of his like really lifting up of Jesus and then comparing him to something and then ending off with the application of warning. Right, and we're going to do that in three different steps. The one I just want to tell you we're going to spend most of our time on. That's point number one. It's who is Jesus? We're going, to, we're going to look at under that heading. Then we're going to move into Jesus and the angels. And then we're going to end with the warning. The last two, don't panic. When we get to them, we're not going to spend as much time in them as, as we did in the first point, all right? So if I see people doing this, I got it, all right? I got it. But let's just trust that the Lord will give us capacity to sit under his word tonight. All right, so the first one, who is Jesus? I really feel like this is the most important, most crucial question, most significant question you could ever ask someone and that they could ever answer. The same question Jesus asked to his disciples when he said, who do people say I am? Who do, who do you say I am? Peter got it correct, and he said, you are the Son of God. You are the Holy One. You are the Messiah, the Promised One. You're the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Peter answered it correctly. And then Jesus says something significant to him. He says, blessed are you, Peter, because this was not revealed to you by anyone here on earth except it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And I just trust that as we unpack this tonight, as we look at the author's just exalting of Jesus, that who Jesus is would be a reawakened in you. And if you haven't met him, that tonight you would meet him for the first time. I think we're in a place where we need to be overwhelmed again by Jesus. We need to be in a place again where we fall down at his feet in awe and reverence and fear because of the wonder and glory that is the King of Kings. We need to come to a place, I think, as people and as his sons and daughters where we return, some of us, to our first love as it speaks about in Revelation. And you get rid of the stuff that we put in front of Jesus and go, Jesus, you again. And for some of us, we need to experience that for the first time. A place where we go, Jesus, I am just overwhelmed by you. Right? The first four verses of what we read in chapter one here, the author unpacks and he reveals eight phrases, but that are profoundly packed with amazing truth about Jesus. They reveal to us the fact that he is king, priest, and prophet forever over God's kingdom and over his people. And we're just going to touch on them quickly as we unpack the way that the author unpacks Jesus. And hopefully we get to a place where our hearts are stirred and we are once again able to just go, Jesus, wow, you're amazing. Right? See, that's what the author starts off with. I'm going to briefly consider these eight phrases. He starts off, he says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. It may not be obvious, but that's one of the first things that sets Jesus apart and makes him superior to anyone and anything else that has ever gone before and ever will be. How? It just means this, that Jesus is the final revelation of God to us. He is the fullness of God's revelation to us. There is nothing greater than Jesus. You see, when you turn to the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament, you are reading God's Word. But God revealed Himself progressively through the ages. And so you go to Genesis and you read about the marvelous creating power of God and how He just spoke stuff into being. And you learn a bit about God's character there. You go, wow, He's creative. And then you move to a section where it speaks about and unpacks the journey of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there you learn about God's sovereignty and his ability to make a choice and work through even the weakest of people. You learn that about God. Then you can turn to passages about the law and you see God's righteousness and holiness there. You turn to the Psalms and you see God's heart for singing and worship and poetry and semantic arts. Then you read the profound wisdom of the Proverbs and the beauty of the prophets. You go to the tenderness and the delicateness, right? And the intimacy of Song of Songs. You learn that about God's character. You get the marvelous mysteries of God's character through the prophetic writings, Ezekiel and Daniel. And so as you go, each, each portion, each snippet reveals something to you about God, but none of it fully reveals who He is. But then you turn to the New Testament and you open up the New Testament and you read the Gospels and you read Jesus and every syllable and every word that was ever spoken in the Old Testament comes together in one massive sermon and that's Jesus. And he just reveals God to us. 
is the perfect revelation, the fullest revelation, the complete revelation of God to us. Don't you think that's amazing? God's word has been fully revealed to us. There is nothing more than what you see and find in the person of Jesus to be known about God to us. The author then goes on and he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. What he means by this, in other words, Jesus being the heir of all things, it means this very simply, Jesus owns everything. Everything. Everything seen and unseen. Everything physical, everything spiritual. Jesus owns time and space. There is nothing that isn't his. And that doesn't belong to him. Theologian by the name of Leon Morris said this, the title or the phrase heir of all things is a title of dignity that shows that Christ has the supreme place of authority as the almighty God throughout the universe. His exaltation or his lifting up to the highest place in heaven after his work on earth was done did not mark some new dignity, but it marked the entrance into the position that was always his. And so he returns to his rightful place. And here's the amazing thing about that, just as an aside note. Do you know that we are co-heirs with Christ? How amazing is that? That Jesus has lifted us up and we get to share in his glory and his inheritance one day. The one who owns everything. It belongs to him. The author then goes on and he says this, not only is Christ the final revelation of God to us and the full, complete revelation of God, not only is he heir of all things, not only does everything belong to him, but he is also the one through whom the universe was made. He says this, and through whom also he made the universe. Now the Greek word um, through whom he made or through who was created, the word created, right? And then the word universe speaks about not just matter, but it, 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 it's actually best interpreted or translated ages. Jesus made the ages. He made, in other words, he made the beginning of all beginnings. He made space and time, all things physical and non-physical, and he made the end of all of it. Jesus made everything that we know that fits into space and time. Everything that we can see and that we cannot see, Jesus made. says this in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things came to being and came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that is made. Nothing that has been made has been made apart from Jesus. It all came through him. When you look at the sun, it came through Jesus. When you look at Table Mountain and you in awe of the beauty of creation, it came through Jesus. When you look at the birth of a baby, and you're in awe and wonder that God created and knit together. It was Jesus who made that. Jesus made everything. Jesus made it. He came to him. The author wants to drive this home. He stands at the end of the future and he stands at the beginning of the past. That's who Jesus is. All things come from his hands. He's the originator of all the processes of life. 
That's who Jesus is. I was, I was, I was fortunate. I don't want to say unfortunate because it could have been both. Right? It could have been both fortunate and un- unfortunate to have gone with the Wileys on a Vitals hiking trip at the end of last year. Right? It, it, it was honestly the best hiking experience of my life, one of the best outdoor experiences of my life. I won't get into the pain of it much. That's fading slowly. But one of the things that stuck with me, like one of the most all sort of like moments, one of the most beautiful moments for me was the end of the first day, not just because the day was at an end, all right, and, we, and we got to where we were going, but because what we did was we hiked, Lord, back up, a mountain from where we were staying and we went to go watch the sunset and it was just one of those perfect moments where there was absolutely not a breath of wind you had spent the day suffering and now you weren't suffering and the sun started to set and there was just quiet and it was about 30 degrees it was like hot not a breath of wind and then there was just the dust in the air and so there were these shades of these hues of orange and yellow and red mixed with like purple and blue and far in the distance, you could just see the top of Table Mountain. If you really strain, you could just see. And it was just one of those moments where it was like, God, this is amazing. And even as I tried to describe it, those that were there will just know I'm not doing justice to actually how awesome that, 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 that moment was. And no matter how much we try to describe the beauty of creation, unless you've been there and seen it with somebody, it always falls short. You can show them a picture, but it doesn't captivate the atmosphere or capture the atmosphere. And I sat there and I was like, God, it's really difficult not to feel close to you in a place like this or in a moment like this. And then as I was preparing and reading what the, what the author had to say to the Hebrews, I realized Jesus made that. And if I can gaze upon creation and be overwhelmed and awestruck and breathless and speechless because of the creation of God, how much more should I worship when I gaze upon the one who made it? How much more should we be taken aback? How much more should we fall down in awe and wonder at the feet of the one who made it? Jesus made it. And that's what the author is trying to say to the Hebrews. When you look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it should cause you to worship him more than anything else. Then he goes on and he says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Not only has he made everything, but he's the radiance of God's glory. What does that mean? We have to understand what God's glory is first. And what God's glory is, is the sum total of all the attributes of God. That's his glory. So if we could list some of the attributes of God, his all-powerfulness, his all-powerful, all-knowing, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, all the time. He's just. He's loving, He's righteous, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's perfect goodness, He's perfect kindness, He's truthfulness, He's perfect faithfulness, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, and on and on and on. The sum total of all of those attributes is the glory of God. And here's the thing, the author says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance. What does that mean? Well, the word radiance is supposed to bring pictures, supposed to conjure pictures of the sun and the rays from the sun. The sun in all of its brilliance is communicated to us by the rays. We benefit from the rays of the sun. We know what the sun is like because rays from the sun are coming to us. The rays are the sun. Everything we know about what the sun is and how it functions comes to us by 
its rays. The rays of the sun or the radiance of the sun. You can't take the rays out of the sun. You can't take the sun out of the rays. They're one and the same thing. But the rays are the means by which we know what the sun is. The same with Jesus. When you take the glory of God, He is the radiance of God. He is the shining forth of all that God is. He is the one who makes known to us how glorious God is. We are benefiting from who God is by the outpouring of God on us and in us through Jesus. That's what it means when he says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. All that God wants us to know and experience of him, we know and experience through the pouring forth of Jesus. That's amazing, right? That should cause us to go, wow, God, you're amazing. Jesus, you're amazing. But then the author's not done, right? He says something else. He goes, not only is the radiance of God's glory, but he's the exact representation of God's being. The Greek word, the original word, the exact representation refers to um, an, an engraving or a, or a da or a, or a seal that, that you mark stuff with. It's like a stamp. But, but more than that, it's like when they used to seal letters back in the old days, you didn't have to lick that terrible stuff, right? They, they used to put stuff in an envelope or they used to roll up a scroll and then they used to drip wax on it and then someone of importance would push a ring or something into the wax and then when you pull it out, the mark is left behind. And you didn't need to know what the ring looked like, you just had to look at the seal and then you would know what the ring looked like. Or I have a friend who works as a fitter and turner and they make huge parts for cars, engine blocks and all sorts of stuff. I don't quite know how it works but he was telling me the one day that they have a 500 ton press and they take a huge thick piece of metal, just a sheet, and they push it over a die and a press and this machine just comes down and lifts up and then you've got a part for a car. It's just molded this piece of metal. And that's what the author is saying Jesus is. He's saying he is an exact representation of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. You want to understand what a signet ring or a, a, a ring of authority looks like? Just look at the stamp that's pressed into the wax. You don't have to see the ring. You've just got to see the stamp. You've just got to see Jesus to know who God is. Just got to see Jesus. And it's not just exact correspondence in essence and nature. What the author is saying here is that Jesus is an absolute, true, and trustworthy revelation and representation of God. There's no falsity in him. He's not just 99% God. He is 100% God. As Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in Luke, he says this, to know God, you must know him as revealed to him by his Son. Right? Then it says this, the author goes, Jesus also sustains all things, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This idea that Jesus sustains everything means that he's not just the one who created it and then stepped back and let it run its course. No, Jesus is actively involved in bringing everything that has been created. He's keeping it together and he's moving it to its predestined end. That's what he's doing. Jesus is actively involved in keeping everything together, every molecule, every atom, everything known to man, physical and spiritual, seen and unseen. Jesus is sustaining. 
And he's moving it from its beginning through to its end. He's the one who keeps it together. I just think about this, the, the earth, right? You know that it's tilted 23 degrees on its axis. It doesn't even have an axis. It's just a big ball floating in the middle of nowhere. And it just stays there. We're moving through space at 19 miles a second around the sun. Not getting closer, not getting further. Staying the same. Jesus sustains that. The sun is a big ball of gas held together by its own gravity. Jesus sustains that. Right, they've just discovered some galaxy. I got my numbers wrong this morning. It's four million light years across. Right, that's how far light travels at its speed for four million years. Right, it's, Jesus sustains that. And he keeps that. Jesus sustains it. If Jesus ceased from doing this, everything in the universe would just disintegrate. Scientists are trying to figure out what holds the universe together. They're trying to understand how things work, how matter was created, why some things that are impossible are possible. It's Jesus sustains it. Jesus sustains it. Every Raindrop, snowflake, gust of wind, lightning bolt, obey Christ's command. You can read about that in Psalm 148. He directs, it says, even the roll of the dice. So whether you're playing a game or doing something you're not supposed to be doing, Jesus controls the roll of every dice. It says that in Proverbs 16.33. You can go read about that. From the rising and falling of nations, Jesus is responsible for it, Job chapter 12. He determines in advance the number of days that each of us will live, Psalm 139. Our text even says, and this is one of the most amazing parts for me, he does all of this active, continuous sustaining just by the power of his word. He just speaks it. He just, he holds it together by the power of his word. It, it obeys him. Jesus just talks, and everything known to us is sustained. It just helps you to, when you walk outside, go, God, thank you that I get to walk on earth that is solid. Thank you that I know with fair certainty that the sun will rise tomorrow and that it's not going to blow up and burn me because you sustain it. Then I love where the author goes next. It's just so mind-blowing. After he's exalted Jesus like this, after he's elevated Jesus like this, after he's declared the greatness and the glory of Jesus, he goes, and he died for you. He, he came to purify you from your sin. He says this, he provided purification for sins. I just think that's stunning and breathtaking. The almighty God of God's Lord of lords and king of kings, he, he could just let go and things would disintegrate. But the only thing he let go of was his glory and his place in heaven to come down to earth and to die for you and me. He didn't just die, he became obedient to death and death on the cross. And I think about the, the, the lyrics of that song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? that you, my king, would die for me. And lastly, in the, 
four verses or key verses of chapter one, the author says this, and then Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What that signifies, what that means, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, what it meant was, what it meant was this, the work of redemption is done. It is finished. Jesus has taken up his seat and his place as high priest and king forever. It is done. In the Old Testament, you had priests walking in and out of the, old, of, the, um, of the most holy of holies once a year. They would have to go in and cleanse themselves and then pray for forgiveness and cleanse the nation. And then they would go out and it had to keep getting done because it was never good enough. Now Jesus is in the holy of holies. The temple curtain is torn and it is done. And he intercedes on behalf of us. And we are seated with him in that place. And it's never going to end. He's our high priest and our king forever. Sitting at the right hand pictures Jesus as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And at the hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father, he waits for the Father's indication for when he should return again. And here's the thing, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now quickly, wrap up here. Begin to wrap up. What, I want to overpromise and underdeliver. What the author does is he then moves to his main point, his conclusion. He's exalted Jesus like this so that he can just declare something really powerfully. He goes, Jesus is all of this. He is the final and complete revelation of God to man. He's the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of the Father's glory, the manifestation of the Father's essence, the sustainer of all things, the one who cleansed us from our sin, the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back again. And therefore, he's greater than the angels. That's his conclusion. He says, so he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then he goes on in verse 5 to 14 to quote Old Testament scripture to back up his conclusion as if the first three verses or four verses weren't enough. And for some of us, we're going, but why does Jesus compare? Why does the author compare Jesus to the angels? Why does he do that? Right? Why is that significant? And it's because to the Hebrew people, angels were incredibly important. You may or may not know this, but, but the law that was given at Mount Sinai from God to his people was given through the mediation, or for lack of a better word, the ministry of angels. Angels appeared to God's people in all different times and parts of the Old Testament. And when they arrived, they were glorious. And what happened was some people were tempted and, and taken off into a place where they actually became angel worshippers. You can read about that in Colossians. This, this act of angel worship was, was, was quite huge. And, and Paul even says, even if an angel brings you a different gospel, ignore it. And we got, well, that's, we've always known Jesus was greater, Jesus was better. That's never been a problem for me. Just remember, for the Hebrew people, the greatest thing that they could pursue was light. Hebrews pursued light as the greatest ethic in life. They had huge festivals. They had the festival of lights where they would use these, light these huge things called candelabras, these huge lights, and they would have the festival of lights. They celebrated light. The Greeks, knowledge, the Romans, glory, but the, but the Hebrews, they celebrated light. And when an angel showed up, it came 
really bright. And so there was this temptation to, to worship angels. And remember, they were being tempted and tested to walk away from their faith. And some people were trying to convince them that Jesus was just an angel. Mormonism does it. Jehovah's Witnesses do it still today. They just teach that Jesus is nothing more than an angel. And you go, well, that's not really worthy of my worship. Let me tell you, if an angel of the Lord showed up in this place today, we'd be on our faces. Never mind God himself. And so they're being tempted to walk away. And today, like then, people were trying to find wiggle room to try and keep their faith, but at the same time, maybe not be obedient to Jesus. If they could make Jesus just an angel, or a good man, or a good prophet, or a good teacher who was unfortunately crucified, well, then they didn't have to listen to what he had to say. But if Jesus is, in fact, God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, then you had better hang on every word and be obedient to everything he says. You don't worship angels, you say. You've never worshipped angels. How does this apply to me? As I was sitting, I was going through this, I was like, well, the Hebrews were tempted to worship angels and be sidetracked by other celestial beings. I think we are sidetracked by far less. Here's how this applies to us. If Jesus is greater than any of the angels, he is most certainly greater and more superior to your pursuit of money. Jesus is most certainly greater than your pursuit of security and comfort. Your pursuit of greener pastures and better days is most certainly outdone by the glory and greatness of Jesus. He is greater than your favorite sports star and sporting events. He is greater than your pursuit of business. He is greater than your pursuit of family. He is greater than your pursuit of self. He is greater than any politician or political system or political ideology you might hold to. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than any government or any scheme of man that promises hope. Jesus is greater than anything. No one says amen. Come on. I don't know if you're just like, oh, wow, God's presence is here, or you're just like, what's this guy saying? Jesus is greater than anything. And that's the point that the Hebrew author, the author of the Hebrews is making. And here's, here's the thing. As a result of that, he's deserving of all of our worship, all of our praise. He deserves to be prioritized. He deserves to be made number one in all things in our lives. I'm amazed that people think that just because they may not have replaced Jesus with something that someone else has replaced Jesus with, that they themselves haven't perhaps replaced Jesus with something of their own. For example, if I've replaced Jesus with sport, and someone looks at it and they go, oh, I don't do that. But then you look at your life and then there's this desire for money. Just because you don't have maybe what somebody else has as a priority over Jesus in your life doesn't mean you mustn't take a good look at your life and go, God, what's in place of you? The principle that the, the author is trying to convey is this. Whatever you prioritize in your life, Whatever it is, whatever you prioritize, even if that thing isn't in itself inherently good, like family, or good health, or comfort, whatever you prioritize over Jesus will distract you from pursuing Jesus and draw you away and cause you to shift your gaze. And the author says, watch out, because if you do that, you're going to drift. You're going to drift away. 
That's why he concludes with this warning. He says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that you do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and even and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The phrase pay attention literally means to turn your mind to, to be attentive to, to, to apply yourself wholly to thinking about this one thing. That's what it means. In other words, we need to make really sure that we don't just ignore or treat with contempt the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the truth about his kingdom and salvation and that he's made it freely available to us. The word to drift away, it's supposed to bring about this idea or this, or, this, or this picture of someone who's in a sea, a tumultuous storm thrown about messed up ocean, and there's just swell after swell and s- storm and lightning and just wave after wave crashing over you, and you're about to drown and you're drifting all over the place, and all of a sudden this rescue boat comes along, and somehow it's just not being affected, but it, dr- it sails up to you and it screams out to you to grab on. But you're more concerned about the driftwood floating in the water, or you're more concerned about the boat looking a specific way, or you're more concerned about the clothes you're wearing and how it might be embarrassing to get on board the boat with the clothes that you're wearing, or the lack of clothes. You're more concerned about your inability to swim or to impress people with your ability to swim. And you're sitting there and you're drifting and this boat comes along, but it's not hanging out there. It's moving and so are you and so you start to drift apart. The author's saying, pay attention to the message of Jesus, otherwise it's going to start drifting and you're going to start drifting and you're going to drift away and you don't know whether the opportunity is going to come again for you to grab hold of that boat. You may just sink and drown. And for some of us, that means eternity in hell. Some of us, we feel like, I don't know if this happened to you before, but you've got caught in the current in the ocean. You, you think you've got control of it. You're like, oh, I'll just, just a little bit. Just here, just here. I, I'm, I'm a good swimmer. I can make it. I can make it. But before you know it, you were once here and then you're there. Has it ever happened to you? I think we can underestimate the current of culture and the power of the enemy. And we can just maybe try and reach up, but not really. You're just happy to be drowning. And the author's saying, hey, pay attention to what's being said here. Don't drift away. Don't allow this thing to drift away. Ignoring this salvation of Jesus is the danger. A A casual attitude towards the gospel is not faith at all. It's contempt for Jesus. And it leads inevitably to drifting away And I just want to say this one more time. The current generated by our current culture and the world around us is strong. But Jesus is the hope and the anchor of our souls. And if we don't anchor down, you're going to get swept away every which way you can imagine. And it may even cause you to drift from Jesus. And for some of you, you so desperately need to grab hold of Jesus. But for some other reason, you're either too embarrassed or too ashamed or you just think you're not worthy, let me say the king of heaven left heaven to die for you. 
you are worthy in Christ. The gospel and the message of Jesus is greater than anything. Jesus is greater than anything. And I want to pray for us now as we end off. And I want to ask a couple of questions. Where are you at with Jesus? Maybe tonight is your night where you go, Jesus, I'm just tired of drifting. I just want to get on board. And it's as easy as this. God, I'm sorry for doing life my way. Forgive me. Save me. And I can promise you, if you pray that prayer in your heart to the Lord, God will respond. Someone can pray it with you. I would happily pray it with you. Any one of the pastors or someone you know who loves the Lord will pray their prayer with you, and I can guarantee you the response to the Lord is come. Come into the kingdom. Get on board. Let's go. Maybe some of you just need to repent and go, God, I am so sorry for the stuff I've put in front of you. Jesus, you are greater. You're greater than my fear of worshiping you. Uh, you're greater than my fear of people. You're greater than my fear of not having enough money. You're greater than my fear of living in this country. You're greater than my fear of anything. I'm going to provide for my family. You're greater. You're greater than my insecurity. You're greater than my sports star that I worship and idolize. You're greater than anything I've ever got or could get. You go, Jesus, I just, just want to love you again. Perhaps some of us, we just want to go, God, I'm living this. Thank you. Let me respond to you in worship. Let this overflow. Let this be the atmosphere of my life that I just, I just declare to people the greatness of Jesus and the glory of my King. I don't know where you are tonight, but I do know that God is ministering to you by His Spirit. I do know that God has got amazing stuff in store for those who just trust Him. So I'm going to ask you to stand. If you've got a word on your heart to share, if there's something that you want to pray, if God has given you perhaps a prophetic word or a discerning word, come and bring it to us in the front. Speak to John, speak to Brad. We'd love for you to share that. If you want prayer, if you, if you want to give your life to the Lord, it doesn't have to be up front. It can be the person next to you. But come and do that. If you want to come and kneel before Jesus and go, Jesus, I just want to declare doesn't matter what people think. I want to raise a flag during worship. I want to declare the glory of God. Then I want you to come and do that and feel free to do that. Jesus says, as we begin to worship you this evening, may there be a freedom in the spirit for us to do that. God, may there be a guarding and a protecting of our hearts by the Spirit tonight as we worship and elevate and lift up the name of Jesus in response to your words. And we want to be like the author to the Hebrews. Jesus, you are amazing. We love you, Lord. And as we worship now, be exalted, be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before we begin to worship, I just want to confirm uh, Roland's word because yesterday, last night, the Lord gave me 